Hello and welcome to the first episode of Star Guitar. Uh, it's a new podcast all about guitars and the people who play them. Today's guest I saw a photograph of with a guitar before I ever heard him playing one. It was on a new band's page in NME in about 2001. And he was uh, kneeling on the floor over this giant effects pedal board with a Burns marquee guitar like Hank Marvin used to play. So I was immediately intrigued. I am talking about uh, Bill Ryder-Jones, who back then was a member of the Coral. I saw the Coral in Liverpool in about February of 2002 and was completely taken aback by this young lad's amazing guitar playing and the way he stomped around the stage and didn't really look at the audience or anything. Bill was, for my money, the best thing about that band and uh, he eventually left uh, rejoined temporarily and then left permanently after Roots and Echoes album. A couple of years later, sparked up a solo career, beginning with um, an instrumental album called If. Um, he's since released um, five more, if you include the film soundtrack that he did for a film called Piggy, the, the most recent of which is, is called Yawny Yawn, which is a piano reworking of the previous year's album that was called Yawn. Um, Yawn is also the name of Bill's studio. I've admired Bill's playing for a long, long time, so when I wanted to do this podcast, I drew up a list of names, and Bill's name was very near the top. Um, thankfully, he was among the first people to say yes as well. So back in July, I got the train up to West Kirby, where he lives and where his studio is, and spent a really nice day sitting in Bill's studio uh, playing guitars, talking about Everton and uh, we went for a nice stroll along the front with a bag of chips as well and just put the world to right. Uh, settle in, I hope the editing's okay and none of the guitars blow your ears off or anything. So here we are, first episode of Star Guitar with Bill Ryder-Jones. Hello Star Guitar, my name is Bill Ryder-Jones, I'm a guitarist, uh, singer-songwriter uh, and um, producer from the northwest of England. Don't like being a, described as a singer-songwriter? I mean, it's just one of those things that induces a little bit of toe-curling, um, but I can't deny the fact that that's what I am, it just, I don't know what it, it bugs me, in the same way solo artists, it just, something about it, it's a bit like... I just want to go on mom. Stop. <laughs> you know, like you're embarrassing me, kind of thing. I think singer songwriter, you <clears throat> automatically think of that guy in the pub with an acoustic guitar, don't you? Yeah, with the dreads who plays yeah. Toto. What's your first memory of the guitar? When did you first <clears throat> pick one up? My first memory of seeing a guitar was some family friends who lived down south, and they had, I kind of, I don't know how we knew them, but went down. Um, girl's name was Lorna, she was my age, she must have been my friend from my first school in Manchester and I think they moved down so and her big brother had like a Marshall stack with one of those kind of heavy metal Ibanez pointy thing, yeah, yeah like purple locking nuts and yeah. all that kind of stuff and I'm, I can just vaguely remember looking at it like what is this you know and I didn't, don't, didn't get to play it or anything like that and it wouldn't have been until I was maybe I think it would have been 10 or 11 
and I think I floated the idea because I'd always played piano and violin. I floated the idea with my parents. My father ran the London Marathon in 1990, what that been, 1992, something like that, and took me to Timpan Alley, like Denmark Street, and um, I didn't know how to play, and saw this Les Paul um, Epiphone kind of thing. I just remember being in front of all these guitars and like, I don't know what it was. I just They just looked amazing, you know? Yeah. And um, I was in a period of my life where I was, I was particularly spoiled and I remember my dad going, oh, do you know what, it's like 300 quid or something, which was a hell of a lot of money for us. Like, mm. it's like we really didn't have a great deal of money, but they were, it was a tricky time. So I ended up, they ended up buying me the guitar and a Sergeant Pepper's chord book because I'd just discovered the Beatles. And um, we were in London for about a week, staying with my uncle. Nick, I think, and just learning. I remember learning the riff to um, "I Feel Fine." Okay, I know it wasn't on. You know, yeah, yeah. And and and, but that that chord book had little bar chords, which didn't make any. You know, none of it made any real sense. So I had that, and then that kind of started guitar lessons up here. When we got back, um, and with with a friend of mine, and we were clearly. So bad, the guitar. Our guitar teacher told us that he 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 had to stop teaching us because he was moving to Dubai. And then his his house was on our walk home from school, and it was kind of like a month later we walked past his house and he was like cleaning his car, <laughs> just giving us a bit of a shifty look. Of me all and Adam, excuses to give moving to the Middle East is um... back then as well. That was the mid nineties. I mean, there wasn't a lot to be done out there unless you were involved in oil. I can't imagine there was much. Trade for guitar teachers out there, but maybe there was. I don't know. Maybe there was. Maybe it fell through, but either way. Th- that's how bad your guitar <clears> playing was. That it was pretty. I remember being like, yeah, not. Didn't make any sense of it. And it was only when I was about 13, when you hit that rough, rough, rough patch in school, um, that I just remember kind of. There was one, I think I'd bought, or we had a six chord Beatles songbook. And remember just learning that, and you ought to play a G chord and a D chord and an A chord and a C chord and nothing. And then the realization that they were called, a G was called a G because it's based on the G note. Yeah. Which is something that, had you been taught, you would know very, but like that realization really made me go, oh God, this makes as much sense as the piano. And then from then on, I just. This, it was just kind of all consuming. It's kind and, of unlocked something. Yeah, and I just remember, like, I was—I f- think I was a far better player then than I am now because it was, you know, six hours. Yeah. Used to, you know, and it was just for for the next few years, just absolutely um, absorbed by the mechanics of it and learning the notes and the scales and. What were you? Did you did you have any other lessons then, or was it? Also no, that, that was it. After that, we we had lessons me and Adam for maybe two weeks, three weeks. And then I put it down for six months for probably the summer holiday. And then picked it back up again and then just kind of played around with it until I, until it made sense. And it did quite quickly, actually, I remember. Um, it's quite a beautiful thing when... Because, you know, well, particularly at that age, I mean, the world's nuts, isn't it? But at that age, nothing has its home and everything's out of order for you. And then you, the beautiful thing about musical instruments is they... They have their own rules. They like that you discover them. You discover the rules. They exist, and then you find them, and that's such an amazing thing because it gives you a sense of 
order and uh, you know limbo, which is quite. I quite suppose good. making sense of it in your head as well, not being taught means that you, I don't know you sort of form your own understanding of it. Like yeah, I suppose you know like you said figuring out that a G chord is called that because it's got G as its root note, yeah. then that is gonna. I don't know. Discovering that is going to have more of an impact, isn't it, than somebody just telling you, right, it's got G, B, B, and that's it. Well, again, I wouldn't... I I never really had lessons with any of the other instruments I I played. Or I did a little, but can't remember a great deal. Um, So I do think, for me, the the fun part, and still is, now I've gotten to the point where like, I'll just tune the guitar randomly into different tunings and then use the ears and the fingers to work out something new. Mm. And I think it's it's the same thrill as back then, yeah. just working out, you know, why a D major is a major and why a D minor is a minor. And I think those are really um, kind of like really important parts of my life, actually. You know, when did you when did it become evident that you were going to be good then, or that you were getting good? Because there's a if you if this was when you were thirteen, when you were, it wasn't long until. No, it was two. It was three years before we got our deal. Mm. So we've been playing. I've been playing for about three years before we got signed. For me, I I was I had very low confidence anyway. The band, it kind of, the boys were great at kind of telling me that I was good, um, and then I think you know I only realised that I I was. I was thought I was decent, yeah. you know, but. But there was quite a few really talented players in that group in the Coral. Um, it was only when the reviews of the first record or the first gigs came out, really, I know they'd been about seventeen, eighteen, that that, and they there was you know quite a lot of them mentioned my guitar playing, that I maybe started to think of myself as you know someone who was was good, yeah, really. Um, like me and Lee, the other guitarists from the Coral, we. You know, in two years we went from kind of strumming along to Oasis songs to working out how to play Django Reinhardt stuff in my dad's um, greenhouse. <clears throat> so looking back, you think after two years that's probably a decent measure of how good someone is on the guitar, you know. Um, he did all that with only, what, two fingers as well? Yeah, you? I know, yeah. Well, you know, it's not about him, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. No, yeah um, you sound just like my dad. <laughs> And my inner voice. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> Cheers for that. That is quite a leap, though, because you know, going from effectively very simple like pentatonic stuff yeah. to to that is yeah, it's quite a, it's quite a leap. Were you seeking out different guitarists to kind of listen to, and you know, was that where your ear was going? I, I remember my first, the first like groups that I really loved. My dad had all, always been a huge Pink Floyd fan, so a lot of even before I picked up the guitar, a lot of, like, our, we used to drive up to up to the Alamo where we've got family right up in Scotland. And, they, you know, I remember hearing The Wall and Dark Side of the Moon, like, were big staples in my childhood. And I think <clears throat> when me and Ian, the drummer from the Coral, were in our house looking through videos one day, watching, looking for Teen Wolf or Police Academy, discovered Live at Pompeii. Yeah. And put that on, and then seeing Dave Gilmore with his top off do all this, make these noises. And then, you know, we had a little, well, I don't know about them, but I had a little bit of a concern that I was like a kind of middle class kid from the Wirral and wasn't as cool as our like scouse mates. And then when you see Pink Floyd talking, and they're like, uh, you know, um, 
apple pie, no crust, please. You know, and you're like, <laughs> these like proper, like not cool gimps, but look amazing and make these, these sounds. Yeah. And, and then around, and then around then, um, the Verve had just, the Verve and Oasis had happened. Oasis were big for all of us. Um, and I liked them, but it was people like Nick McCabe and Graham Coxon and Dave Gilmore kind of making sounds that didn't sound like guitars that made me go, you know, it was always it was always Nick McCabe for me mainly, particularly his the first the stuff he did in the first. In fact, his playing on all those Verve records is amazing, as yeah. are the bass and drums. But on the first record, when that band was, they didn't sound like they should, having come from where they came. And he was when I was fifteen, sixteen. You know, he was hair down, making strange noises, looking cool, not saying a word, not moving, not rocking out, identify. You know, it's like bullseye, like yeah. that's yeah, yeah. yeah. I want him. Yeah, <laughs> I want to yeah. be like him. And yeah, was, that first <clears> record, though, like, swirling. I know. Like, like, slide away and start uh, and well, And what the things that he said at the time, you know, I, I used to buy Guitarist magazine. Yeah. And, like, what, there was a piece on him where he was saying how, you know, he has no problem pushing a button in the studio if it makes his guitar sound better. And where we were coming from in Liverpool in, like, the early 2000s, everything was very Lars, Captain Beefheart, Love... Super dry, super in your face. Mm. They still loved a bit of Pink Floyd, but anything bit too Pink Floydy or a bit reverby, or reverby in the way the Lars weren't reverby, yeah. was defined as sweaty. Sweaty. <laughs> that was what they, yeah, that's what, you know, wire pedals were fucking sweaty, like, <laughs> and chorus pedals were fucking sweaty. <clears throat> and then they kind of blew us a little bit, like all these, all these sounds, and we just started, you know, smoking weed and. <clears throat> and then discovering the Stone Roses and, you know, and, and this new way of... But, yeah, and particularly Nick McCabe, like, creating these worlds. Um, I'd never heard anything like it, you know. And it wasn't... What I love to this day about Nick McCabe is is, is use of effects pedals is wonderful, amazing, and, and racks. Like, I've got a bunch of quadroverbs just because I, I bought, like, four of them when we had money because I knew he, he used them. You know, I bought the old Mesa Boogie out. You know, tried to copy what he had. But his, play, but his playing without all that was so tasteful and so clever and never too much, you know. Um, very similar to, like, Will Sargent. Whereas Will Sargent hardly plays on the Bunnymen stuff. Yeah. He'll just do a chord in a great place and you go, wow! <laughs> Whereas Nick McKay plays all the way through and doesn't stop. But when he wants to be heard, he makes himself heard. And when he wants to sit behind, he sits behind. And I think that's a really good lesson for kids because when you pick up a guitar or a drummer's are worse for it, you just want to keep playing. I know, like, first choral record's got, like, 11 tunes on it. I think there's, like, 16 guitar solos. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and everyone, you know, it's just the way you are, is it, you know? What um what did guitar do for you then as a as a thirteen year old? Because you you talk like I've heard you talk about being you know shy and quiet when you were thirteen and the world not quite making sense. And then a couple of years later, you know those early choral gigs that I'd see you stamping around, you know, Mackenzie hat on, stamping <laughs> around on the stage, you know, like man possessed basically with a guitar. Is it bring something out in you that I don't think so. I don't know, man, because that is. That's such a strange period. 
Mm. It's really. I was telling this story only the other day that when when the Coral were doing our showcases for labels, we had Sony and Warner and all them jerks come up to see us. And Alan Wills at the time, our manager, you know, had to pull me aside one day and say, "You're gonna have to turn around and face these people when you play now." <laughs> and then to go from that to what you're describing, yeah. you know, just I guess confidence came in, and <clears throat> you know, we in our rehearsal room, we were all just heads down and make sure we played, and then I think we. We we kind of exploded quite quickly, yeah. and the crowds were quite, you know, and you see Paul and James start getting a bit confident, and like the stomping thing. I look back at it now and go, "What are you in? What are you doing? Like you look so daft." Like you enjoying yourself. Well, was I? I probably wasn't. <laughs> but I believed we had a cause, and I completely believed in what we were doing at that mm. point. You know, I was very, I was super like unnerved by the whole thing at the time. I remember thinking like. We're just weird. No one's going to like this. Like, you know, I knew James could write tunes. I never thought people would take Dreaming of You <coughs> as, like, you know, I never thought it would be, like, a hit. I just thought it was a cool... Yeah. I thought I thought Shadows Fall was, like, what we did. And and I, I, I just don't know what I would... Yeah, but it must have given me some confidence. I mean, the guitar, absolutely... Getting back to your question, the guitar gave me, like, a, a sense of self that I just didn't have. Yeah. You know, I wasn't particularly academic and wasn't good at sports um, and I and I, this thing meant that like you know like you have a couple of lads in secondary school giving you a hard time and then you can go home and you know full well you can play the guitar well it gives you that little bit of ah you know they can't do that you know or something like that and you just get me a bit of confidence just when I needed it you know and how's <clears throat> the relationship with the guitar been um, throughout the rest of your life, you know, is it is it been a constant or is it something that you come back to or sort of, you have a bit on and off thing? It's been a bit on and off in in well, like you didn't think you were going to get away with me not talking about my mental health problems, did oh, you? <laughs> you want to? Yes, I do. Thank you very much. No. Yeah, um, I am here for it. No, you yeah. asked the leading question. I know, fault. No, um, <laughs> when. When I when I left the group, I had like quite a severe issue, which led me to put the guitar down for a couple of years. I'd it was one of them perfect storms. I'd had a I'd had my breakdown, which we think was drug and trauma induced, but I'd also just learned Nick um, Drake's guitar tuning, so I'd convinced myself that. So for about six months, I was convinced that the tuning to Rhythm Man. Had had like some kind of evil in it, and had made me ill. So I locked all my guitars away when I left the group and didn't didn't play them. Okay. I still enjoyed music. I played the piano quite a lot at the time, so that's why my first EP and the first two records are mainly mainly piano. They're all written on the piano. There's yeah. bits of guitar on both of them, but that was that was quite that was as I was, you know, I'd realised that that was a that was a, a mental issue, and it wasn't in fact true. But it did it did rob me of something that had always been a bit of a safety for us. But in turn, it got me back into playing the piano, and and that was also good for my songwriting. Um, but then, yeah, in the last three years, I'm just like back to where I was when I was sixteen. Like now, I love playing loud in a way that I never used to. You know, in yeah. the car, I was always a bit like it's expected of you, but like it doesn't feel like you know, like the moodier thing. But now I like I like you know me. Me, me, me fat driver and I like going 
bang! You know, like, <laughs> like the kind of, um, um, but yeah, in answer to your question, up and down, but I'm kind of, um, now I'm, I'm in a place where I'm, like I mentioned before, I love, I love new tunings and learning and forgetting all the old tricks mm. that I've, I've kind of spent 20 years learning. But your guitar playing has changed an awful lot over the years though. Like you would say it's, you've probably got like a, a, at least on your one anyway, the sort of more simplistic style of, of playing a lot more yeah. um, <clears throat> like soundscape really than, than... It's back to what I yeah. loved and never really did a great deal of when I was younger, you know. I think it was quite frantic, wasn't it? Like yeah. my playing in the early... My playing, my playing on the second choral record, I think, is very good. Um, but it's very much acoustic and clean amps and not a lot of madness. But yeah, with, with Yawn, um, more so than West Kirby, um, it was just about, you know, I knew I knew the songs had loads of space in them and Nick McCabe again was just a great reference, mm. you know, and like Red House Painters and um, like Anne Gilmore, you know, but without, you know, the flash the, yeah, yeah. The, well without the class do you know what I mean because he's a very classy player do you know what I mean yeah. but I think um, I wanted that record to be in parts tasteful and serene and in parts just kind of nasty noise you know so that's um, but yeah that's I think despite there being a couple of songs on Yawn that I would have liked to have bettered I think guitar wise I think it's um it did remind me that I can, you know, I can still cut it <laughs> with the with the great riffers. So we'll talk about guitars for a sec. Well, more than a sec, maybe. Um, you went from the Epiphone Les Paul. Remember you having like a Burns, you know, like the, I had the Burns, yeah. Um, that was great. That was. Are these things that you will keep on to, or do they just sort of fall by the wayside? Yeah, no, I, I did sell a lot when I left the band. I sold a lot of yeah. gear. I had my. I had that sun, sunburn. Is it sunburn? Sunblush strat. That was a Mexico strat. That that and the burns and this three three five, with the three guitars on the first choral record. Um, this was the first thing we bought with. The advance we got. Yeah. I don't know the. I know so nothing. I know nothing about the Bill ages. Gibson 335, 355, right? Or was it 335? I think it's a three. I always was told it was a 335. Bought it off um, a lad called Danny Roberts who played in the Hokum Clones. Oh, right. Yeah. He used to work at Dawson's. I, mean, I don't know how he ended up with it, but I'm sure okay. he fell off the back of something. Do you use that uh, trend no, much? No, nah, never. But uh, it looks really weird if you take it off. There's just this big block here. Mm. But no, I don't, I don't use that. I, I've, I think I used all the trem I could in the early 2000s. I wanted to leave some for someone else. Um, I mean, it's a, be- a beautiful guitar. I mean, I realise talking about a guitar that people can't see is uh, not great, but it's um, like wine, sort of wine red. Yeah, and it's had, it's, had, it's had some time. It's got all its belt. But it's it's a beautiful guitar. It records the best out of any guitar that I own. Um, and it's, the, I mean, it's just kind of does everything really it's well. A serious guitar, that. Like, it's got kind of... Bands new advance sort of written all over it. It's the it's the thing that people. Well, I, you know, I was playing. I think at the time because they all had jobs. They all had some decent. Like Lee had like his telly, and and I I was playing either the the Epiphone Les Paul copy or a black. I picked up like a black and white Squire Strat thing. 
But it's a little bit classy though. It's a little bit daunting to play sometimes. I prefer like solid body guitars now, like cheaper ones, because mm. I, I do worry about this. And it's got such sentimental value it's to it. Kind of dwarfs you as well. I know, I know. And you can't, you can't. It's too heavy to have low. That's why I've got lower back problems. I think. How precious are you <clears> about these things? Because I, you know, you, you sort of see these things. It's clearly, I would say. Maybe early seventies. I think maybe? I had seventy two in my head. Yeah, because I just have these numbers floating around. You know, people go, "Oh, that." Get you know, my guitar tech would be like, "Oh, I think that's seventy. But I think, how precious am I about the age of things? Not the age, of stuff, but just the um, like, you know, don't touch that. Give it here. Very, you know, um, give my guitar away for the night. That kind of thing. Oh, I mean, no, if you're taking it on the road with you, this comes on the road with us. Um, I've got two that don't. I'll lend this to people quite happily, but it just depends on the person, you know. Mm. And I'll lend, I've lent equipment off people before, and as long as you take care of it, that's no, it's better than that than being in, in a box somewhere. Um, Liam, my one of my, well, my best friend and the guitarist who plays live with me, is not allowed to play this anymore because he does not know how to work a guitar strap. The amount of times he used to play this all the time. The amount of times. I'd watch him play with like the strap kind of just and I don't have any strap locks lost them all it was kind of half hanging off so, seconds from disaster yeah kind of I'd, I'd been like, <laughs> so he's not allowed this anymore this is the important one that I've never sold really everything else like the burns and that strap mm. they, I sold those the, the other guitar that I mentioned to you earlier my, I've got an early 70s black jack with these block inlays and I bought it for myself it's like a 21st birthday present right saw it in music ground in Leeds and they charged me way over the odds for it I can't remember what I paid but I know what it's worth and it's not not that <clears throat> I've lent that to the Orioles great band from Halifax and that guitar I did sell when I left the Coral when I was selling all my stuff the Alan Wills who you may, may or may not know of he was the guy who the found... That's a sonic guy. Yeah, yeah, and who passed away uh, some years ago. When he'd found out I was selling all my equipment, offered to buy that off me for a fair price and said, I'll keep it for my bands and if you ever want to buy it back, you can just give me what I paid for it. And then I did... I played guitar for Arctic Monkeys on their UK and Europe AM tour. And with the money I got from that, I got back in touch with Alan. We hadn't spoken in a few years because things were a bit messy. Never, me and Alan were always on good terms, but it just, I just tried to avoid the whole yeah. coral thing. <clears throat> and I got back in touch with them to buy the guitar off. And so we were in touch for about two months whilst I was just trying to get the last few hundred quid. I was paying them off in bits. He'd given me the guitar back already. And I think after I'd paid him the final like three or four hundred quid of what I owed him, um, and we'd had some good chats in that time. He'd come up to see me, and we'd reconnected. And then he, and then and then he uh, he passed away only a couple of months later. So that guitar now has got his name scratched in the back of it with a key, right? Because obviously it's worth it's a vintage guitar. It's worth nothing now. Now that it's got someone's name scratching it, just to remind me never to sell yeah, yeah. anything again. But I'm so thankful of that because it meant I got the chance to reconnect with someone who I definitely wouldn't have. You know, it definitely would have just had a phone call saying Alan's dead, uh, which I did get. But I was fortunate yeah, enough to have had a few meals and stuff. had a few laughs and reminded me of just how important he was to me as a, as a young young lad. You know, and all because of you know one one 
Fender Jag, you know, and, and that's um, and that's why it's with the Orioles now and not sat in the studio because that's so that that and this, that Jag and this and the the Les Paul that Noel Gallagher gave me. Um, okay, you can't just drop that. Um... <laughs> well, I'm pointing at it. Um, <laughs> so Noel Gallagher gave you a Les Paul. So what are we looking at? That it, black one. You can grab it if you want. Yeah, okay. you can. You'll know more about it than me. Black Beauty, Maybe. I believe. Um, Possibly. They just lift up, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay, so what have we got? It's a black Les Paul with gold hardware and two P90 pickups. So I don't think it is a Black Beauty. No. Black Beauty, they have I three, think, have got three pickups. Three on bookies, usually, right? So this is... <clears throat> so it says it's a Les Paul Custom. There you go, well, there's your answer. So when we were making Roots and Echoes, which was... I'd, I'd left the band and then rejoined... No, it's heavy. I know it's really heavy. Yeah, it's um. So it was one that I used through the making of Roots and Echoes, and I think he Noel had always been a supporter of us and my playing in particular. I think it was you know that old story about Johnny Marr who gave him a guitar, and I think it was at the time I thought that's what's happening. I was quite pleased with myself, but the story he told me about this guitar, um, the story he told me was that. Well, we know what guitar shop owners are like. And I think they'd, I think definitely maybe had come out and he was well rich, but still not super, superstar. Went into this guitar shop and asked to, I want to look at this Les Paul. And the the guy said to him, reluctantly got it down off its kind of, you know, pedestal, whatever you'd call it, and said, um, this is actually pre-owned and signed by Peter Green. And kind of tentatively give it to Noel, Noel being who he is kind of spat on his sleeve and rubbed off the signature and said, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> and this guy, apparently this guy's life just fell through his arse, you know. And so that, yeah, so apparently that belonged to Peter Green in the 80s. And, uh, as, uh, you know, and for obvious reasons, that will never be sold either. Uh, and that also needs a lot of work. I'm not much of a Les Paul guy, but you know what it does really well? Oh, um, doors open. But Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, um... <clears throat> It stops the kick drum from moving. Yeah. You know, it does It does like that. You know those kind of... Um, you know the electric guitar on the Nick Drake records? It's very dull, oh, bassy. Yeah. Because it plays like an acoustic. It's such a beast. Like, it, it's, it, it, it distorts really well, but I found, like, it does clean, bassy, almost, like, doorsy right. stuff. Right. Well, like, sort of very well. pick up, no tone. Yeah, sort exactly, of, like, yeah. Yeah. Jazzy I, well, I'm, I'm very... You know, very Mick Ronson as well. If you pull all the pull all the tone out of it, I haven't necessarily looked after it like I should, but it's it's due. Um... Well, it's in tune though. Oh, well. oh. You tell me. I've got... it yeah, out. it is in tune. Yeah. Um... <laughs> should hope it doesn't go out of tune. It's it's like Terminator, isn't it? It's... You have been lovingly caressing that um, Gibson, um, so could we hear it? Yes, I you can. Yeah. Um, well, is there something that you go? Do you have a you know like a may I help you riff? Like um... <laughs> Bobby can really wear. <laughs> may I help you? That's so good. Yeah. Isn't it? Um, um, is there something that you you know you pick a guitar up and immediately you go to something? Or, um, um, or are you just uh, you know, not really? I mean, like, and see how it sounds. <clears throat> well, with this this guitar set up for one song, I only use it for one song in the set, and it's in the tuning for the song Mither. Okay. So my may I help you riff would be um, this charming man 
Right. Usually. Or, um, you know, yeah, usually that. Like, I bust out at gigs quite often just because it is, you know, or, or I love, um, I can do, I can do Love Will Tell Us Apart on guitar quite well. This is set up for the live version of, of Mither. So it's in a tuning which is E, B, E, A, B, E. Mm. Which I find really fun. And I'll just play it, I'll just give it one strum with the marine layer. set higher than I would have it at a gig and normally at a gig I'd have this crusty DD5 that I've had since I was well, since it came out god knows how long ago that's mainly just to keep the band and me in time <laughs> tuning it that's just a, a like <clears throat> move on from the tuning that I discovered when I was trying to learn a Red House Painter song and I knew it was in some tuning and I just I watched a video of Mark Selleck playing it I was like what that what? so I learned where his arm was and I played and then I just started oh, wow. moving okay. the strings so most of Yawn apart from Mither is Basically an E minor chord, um, and it kind of frees you up. It, it, you get the chance to add like all these kind of chords, just over your simple minor chords and your major chords. So basically, like <clears throat> your typical bar chord would become. So if I was to play an A, I'd bar the fifth and put my middle finger on the sixth fret on the G string and that would become the A major chord okay and then then you're adding um, just adds like these sixths you know you'd never be able to play those normally you'd be such, such complicated no you'd be chords you'd be like you'd be like this yeah, yeah and I found that through that um, like pretty much everything like learn a few new chords but you also and the beauty of it is is you have to you kind of know that that's kind of like in a major seventh and so you know that the B is going to be near and if you're playing normal guitar you'd go you'd go well that's good we're going to need an F sharp or a C sharp minor or something but then you have to find these find these really nice inversions just through your ear takes you there and you go Okay, yeah, I'm into that, and and that became the basis of the old record, like pretty much every tune on it. And it's good because it means I can't solo 
a great deal. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So the parts rather than just yeah, kind of wanking about. Which well, is... you, you know, you played the first few chords of Maida then, and it that it sort of conjures up the whole world that the song's in. Yes, yeah. it's, um, it's a really kind of emotive thing, and it's like you say, it's like a part rather than. Yeah, well, I'm quite proud of that because I'm not like. I'm not a great riff writer. Mm. Like I've never, even with the choral, never really. You know, like you think of Johnny Marr or John Squires, or mm. you know, like people who come up with these great hooks. I've never been guitar-wise good at that. Um, but I think oh, I've changed the tuning of that now. But I think that first, not that it was like a, a hit or anything, but any anyone who listens to my music, I think you hear that chord, the mind, and it doesn't really sound like anything else. Mm. Um, and that was that was pretty much day one of the record. That was when I went. Well, that's what the records to be because I already had like John. Even John's in the same. Just slightly more interesting ways of playing. You know, like I still like, still like. Still a sucker for all those things Hendrix did with his little the little trills, little moves. Chords yeah, yeah, stuff, yeah. It was always something that like that was big for me, and I always felt like you know one thing I was good at, well, I got good at towards the end of my time with the band, was not doing too much. Like in the early days, it was very twiddly, mm. and again, I don't so the sound of practice doesn't excite me at all. You know, I like I like a nice clean part played well, but certainly more interested in like like I said, you know. When Will Sargent kind of goes, or, or, or what, you know, or, um, at, a, at the right time, yeah. then that's for me is exciting. You know. And you did just remind me, the May I Help You riff that I do for Soundcheck is um, is a Nick McCabe one. Um, Sound, obviously won't sound as good as um, when he does it but I have to set this I'd love to be able to write, you know. Maybe it's I incredible. should. It is something else, isn't it? That yeah. This is a real. But again, like the, the effects really aren't doing it. Other than that, it's the same with um, some of Graham Coxon's playing. You know, I love, I love the, the, that one loud repeat. Obviously, that's a lot. Really, like short. Played that on a while, um, yeah, and I, I think the solo for that is. I'm a big fan of that. Maybe I should 
I've got my mind going now. Maybe I should try and rip that off. <laughs> Again, like it's more than the chords, isn't it? You know those chords, like loads of open notes. They're good use of like dominant sevenths yeah. that you don't really hear anymore. It was like massive in the nineties when like Shaq were really. Like, it's a very like baggy, yeah, 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 sound that you don't you don't hear. And Pavement used it a lot as well. Maybe it was just a nineties thing. Um, Pavement, uh, I imagine a, a big influence on your playing. There's elements that there's quite a lot on sort of West. Kirby that yeah. sort of got pavement <clears throat> I think less so we play and then actually like I just love their songs and mm. there's something about his playing married with those type of songs that I was just a bit stuck in yeah certainly like Tutor Birkenhead well the, the riff of that is yeah, what I'm sort of thinking it's very, of, yeah. is, well it's kind of a mix it's like it's kind of robbed a bit from a, a Steve Malkmus melody from a solo record that I forget um, but certainly the, the way of playing that inversion of the major chord I think I don't know if they actually used it on any pavement record but it, it's I think they're more likely to do that over an A that's like octave of the C sharps but adding in the trying to do with that that was one of those lovely things that just happens because you're so influenced by something you're, like, you're not conscious of I wasn't like there's like quite a strange like when it gets to there's a bit of confusion about where the D starts and ends and where the B starts and ends because that's a you're kind of in a B there and then a, there's a B back to a D and it, they fall in quite strange places and it's exactly the kind of thing that you'd do if you weren't learned. Do you remember writing that song? <clears throat> well, I, I remember my flatmate, uh, not my flatmate, the lad, my, one of my other best friends, Roy, who lives downstairs, saying to me, I was like walking out of the flat and he was going, you were up late last night? And I was like, oh, yeah. And he was like, did it, did it. But I, yeah, I vaguely remember. It's harder to remember those songs that just happen in a couple of hours because you're just kind of, you're not really thinking of anything else. Like Lemon Trees, off your second record, mm. very similar. Four hours have gone by and you've got a, you've got a tune. Yeah. Um, so no, I don't remember a great deal. I know that the end came afterwards and I, I hadn't actually made anything anywhere near that heavy for a long, you know, for, for a long time, certainly not on my record. Like tunes like Daniel, which was like the lyrics were from an up from a different set of chords and different set of melodies, and then I had these chords. And I think mm. I love the chords for that. <clears throat> the something that happens at the towards the end of it. That where, pedal, that pedal thing. Do you yes, know? there's there's a the chord. Is it the chord? Is it like the the chords dropping below it, but the it's pedal the, stays the same. The ba- it's m- mainly the bass. wrong that's wrong so the chords are going from b to e and the bass just stays on the and that on its own sounds a bit 
just like a velvet trick. But I think after the rep, if you haven't heard that song, listeners, listener, um, it's all very melodic before that. Everything follows. Mm. It's suiting you. But that again, <clears throat> those chords are just an amalgamation of um, like a pastel song and a light ship song that I love. So it's the it, it, that song is the in Daniel is the bass that's sort of changing in. The, that, the if that's the bit the we're talking about yeah. at the end, yeah, it is yeah. So you've got like the chorus. So that is the, the lead into the outro. Like most of my tunes go like verse, sort of chorus, bit, verse, sort of chorus, end, long end. Right, different bit, you know, and and, and the verses, uh, the choruses, which are. So what I did for the outro was the outro split in these two different bits. So we got the start of it, which is. Second time this that end it happens is where the chords change. It's just one extra chord, okay. really, and it just it does. It, you notice the difference when you play it live. It is a real nice like just one passing chord, but because it's been referenced because they're the same chords as the actual chorus, it's familiar and people feel like there's a resolve that they're used to and it. It grounds, you know, yeah. the ending. If the ending's got nothing to do with the rest of the tune, melodically or harmonically, it's a good way of not feeling like it's just been tacked on. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, it, that's really it's sort of really effective when you listen to it. Um, so you were talking before about how your um, guitar teacher moved to Dubai because he didn't want well, to teach. Them, sort of maybe yeah. maybe moved to Dubai. So it's a little bit how I felt when I mentioned that I wanted to speak to you for a guitar podcast and you brought out a piano album. Um, <laughs> Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did that just to just, avoid this. Well, I, I'm sort of flattering myself, obviously, <laughs> but I know that's why you did it. How different is it performing with um, a piano <clears throat> and a guitar? So, like, it's, you know, you've toured earlier this year, but you're going to go out and do Yawn and Yawn. Just me and the piano. Just you and the piano. Yeah. Not this one, I hope. No, not that. That's just the shelf for our live show. Right. Because I can't have people look at, like, a keyboard stand on one of those X. Do you know what I mean? Look at a big Nord like, and a laptop. Yeah. <laughs> It's a bit. It's a bit harder. It's it's scarier. It's um. With the piano, scarier. Yeah, because it's not. I'm not. Despite it being, my, you know, me having played it longer than the guitar, I'm certainly not a pianist. And um, guitars, you wear it in front of you, and it's very. You feel very safe behind it. Cause I know, unless I'm way too drunk, I know that I can still do. I know I'm not going to mess up. Really, I don't really. Mm very rarely make bum notes with guitar. My voice is all over the place, always. But with the piano, <clears throat> I don't have the me- the muscle memory that I do with the guitar, so like, rogue notes, jazz notes, jazz uh, notes. Are, more, are more common. Can you give that Gretchen spin? Yeah, of course. Is it in tune? Is it, I, I mean, My 11-string Your 11-string Gretsch. <laughs> oh, someone's put a string on it. That's good, isn't it? Yeah. So it's now a 12-string Gretsch. More popular than their 11-string cousins. Never um, much those wow. There you go, straight away there's your Will Sargent, isn't it? 
Yeah. Do you use it much? No, not really. We use it in the studio for like for more poppy things, just to brighten. I don't have a lot of call for it, but I feel like it's um they're great to have. They're just a they're just a bugger, aren't they? Yeah. If I do something a bit closer to that kind of thing, like because I'm thinking doing some more. It's really hard. I don't want to stay away from jangly, but I do love, love the way like teenage fan club would use this kind of guitar. I don't know. It's just the thing with these is like it's, do you think it makes things sound too bright and sunny? Well, no you say you're, that. No matter what you <clears throat> Well, you say that, but if I just um. You know, it's a 12 yard level towers apart, mm. isn't it? You know. So, there we have the first episode of Star Guitar. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, if you said nice things to me about the podcast already, then I hope it lived up to any expectations that you may have had. Obviously, I heartily recommend you go and listen to Bill's music if you're not familiar with it. Um, albums of kind of unrivaled quality, I think. He's currently on tour as well. If uh, you listen to this in time, you might be able to get to see him. So I think it's billriderjones.co.uk for any more information on that. If you are interested in Bill beyond the things that we talked about today, he hinted at you know a few things in his past, I would absolutely recommend David Kavanagh's profile that was published in Q late last year. I think it's available online. Um, since David Kavanagh passed away, they've put it on their website. Um, it's the most comprehensive, beautifully written thing. Thanks to Liam Frost for providing me with some beautiful intro music. That's a song of his called Try, Try, Try. Thanks to Ellen Wishart for designing the lovely logo for Star Guitar. Um, thanks to Aoife at Domino, Bill's record label, for setting up the interview. And, of course, thanks to Bill for giving up his time to speak to me. Um, if you'd like to get in touch, you can. My email is starguitarpodcast at gmail.com. There's an Instagram where you can also see photographs of all Bill's guitars that we talked about today, if you're not sure what any of them are or what these weird guitar nerds are going on about. Um, that's Star Guitar Podcast on Instagram and Star Guitar Pod on Twitter as well, if you'd like to uh, follow on there. Um, so I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, bye-bye.